Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Matt Gallagher, a filmmaker whose credits include The Rise and Fall of the Grumpy Burger, Grinders, and How to Prepare for Prison. His latest documentary, Prey, which tracks a civil suit brought against the Roman Catholic Church for protecting a priest who pled guilty to multiple sexual assaults, won the Rogers Audience Award for Best Canadian Documentary and the DGC Special Jury Prize for Best Canadian Feature Documentary at Hot Docs earlier this year. It makes its broadcast and streaming premiere today, Tuesday, November 19th, at 9pm on TV Ontario and streaming at tvo.org. It's really powerful, and you should watch it. Matt picked Moneyball, Bennett Miller's 2011 adaptation of Michael Lewis's book about the miracle of sabermetrics, the stats-based approach to team building employed by the Oakland A's general manager Billy Bean that subsequently revolutionized baseball. Brad Pitt plays Bean with Jonah Hill as Peter Brand, the analyst who showed him the future. They're backed by a supporting cast that includes Robin Wright, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Reed Diamond, Karis Dorsey, and some TV doofus named Chris Pratt. And the result was a sports movie that's a lot better and more interesting than it has any right to be, or at least that's how I first experienced it. This is someone else's movie. It's funny, when, whenever I'm about to start filming a, a new project, a new documentary, I always, I'm looking for a book or a movie or something that can help me, you know, along the way, sort of uh, guide me. I, 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 I remember 20 years ago, I made my first short documentary and it was on my uncle Terry. He he uh, he 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 lived in the worst neighborhood in North America that I'd ever seen. It's, it's in downtown Detroit. It's called the Cass Corridor. And Uncle Terry was this uh, black sheep of the family. He, uh, our family lived on the Canadian side. Uncle Terry lived on the American side. He was an ex-Vietnam vet, and he lived in this horrible neighborhood called the Cass Corridor. And I wanted to do a documentary on him because he was he he was a guy who uh, had all these great stories. And, and I always wanted to get those stories on tape. But when we started filming this documentary, he didn't want to be a part of the documentary. And so we were wrestling with how to deal with this in the documentary. And so finally, uh, me and my partner who were working on the film together, we, we figured it out. And we sort of said, well, this is like Apocalypse Now with Kurt. And, and, like, and like you only see him a couple times and you only get, but like you hear stories about him. And so we started to shape the documentary like that. And so from that point on, I guess I started to look at, you know, films that I like, uh, films that can help me along the way. And when I started making uh, the documentary Prey about clergy sex abuse, I chose Moneyball to be that guide. And uh, it went from there. I was trying to figure out if there was even a connection. I mean, sometimes people just choose a movie they love that has no bearing on their own work. But how do you get from one to the other? I mean, how does, how does Moneyball, which is a fairly lighthearted, structure-driven story about math changing the baseball world or changing the game, literally changing the game of baseball and how it's played. How do you get from that to a massive abuse scandal? I, I'm I kind of – I'm starting to see it I think maybe in terms of the way every piece fits together. But Yeah, I mean it's, it's – it's, you know, it's – I guess it's the story, you know – that's a really good question, and I haven't even put much thought to it, but let me try here. Sure. I mean, I like the story of the unreluctant hero. It's, it's a David and Goliath story, but it's, it's, it's not your typical David and Goliath story. Right. And that's what always struck me about Moneyball. And I actually had to go back and rewatch it while I was making my film. Because in my film, in, in my documentary, the hero 
seemingly doesn't get what he wants, or at least in one of the earlier edits, he didn't get what he wants. Uh, uh, he goes to court, and 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 the court uh, gives him a handsome uh, a decision through a jury. But at the end of the day, the church appeals it, and, and he's sort of left brokenhearted. Yeah. And I remember watching Moneyball, and I remember seeing Brad Pitt's character, and he was the general manager of the Oakland Athletics. Billy Bean, yeah. And he, and he also didn't get what he wanted. Like he didn't, he 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 never got to the World Series game. He 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 never got to play that last game. And but I remember watching Moneyball years ago when it came out, and thinking that oh, this this film actually has a happy ending. And I and I had to go back and rewatch Moneyball to find out how they did it. Yeah, that's an excellent point, because it does do that thing where it leaves you feeling like you've seen an underdog movie rather than a movie about you know some millionaires who made more money, which kind of is the, the way people dismissed it at the time. It's like, oh, well, it's Major League Sports. It's not really how can you be an underdog if you're playing in the show. Sure. But, of course, it's all about how you see yourself. And if you yeah, if you laser in on the specific disappointments of the central character, you have, you know, Rocky. He made it all the way, but he... Well, it took him a while to win. Uh, you you have the Bad News Bears. You have all of these other triumphs that aren't really – like it's just that you made it, that you did the thing you wanted to do. It doesn't matter that you – you mo- what's the term? Mosesing is – that's not right. Um, you know, Moses led them to the promised land, but he didn't go in himself. Right. That's, that is still victory. That is still, you know, legendary, literally. People are still telling stories years and years later. So yeah, and it, for Moneyball, but for Prey, well, for Prey, we we had this moment in court where everyone was, uh, you know, applauding each other and slapping each other in the back, and the subjects were happy. And, and I'm thinking, this is the end of my film. This is going to be a good documentary. I, I, you know, so often in making documentaries, you're telling real stories, and you're always looking for something of an of a of, a, of an ending that has a good resolution and a positive resolution, but they're hard to find. Yeah, and so. So when we when we were filming Prey and we were in the courtroom for the verdict and the verdict came out, I was excited. I was just thinking, oh, this is great. But then 30 days later, the church appeals the verdict and and I could have chose not to include that in the film, but it would have been unfair. Yeah. I, 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 think, I think I had to include it in the film. And then I started watching Moneyball again and I, and I saw how they did it. And, and they, you know... Brad Pitt's character was never his plan was never to win the World Series. He wanted to change the way baseball was played, and he said that early on in the film. I mean, he he was very clear that that his his goal, his 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 big problem that he had to overcome was not to win the World Series, not to win more games. He wanted to change the way baseball is played. So they they sort of uh, had this ending, and I don't know how true it is to the real story or not, but it it, it actually works for the film. So with my documentary, what we did is. I remember my my main character Rod. Rod McLeod was never in it for the money. He's 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 the main character that in Pray that took on the church. He he was never in it for the money. In fact, he turned down two offers. He first first he turned down a six hundred fifty thousand dollar offer from the church, and then he turned down a million dollar offer for the church. So this is a man who is determined to bring this to a public court and to have people hear what the church did, and so. I went back through all his interviews, and I had done a lot of interviews on, on tape with Rod, and I started to find these, these sort of clips that sort of revealed his, his true motivation for why he actually went to trial. And, and so we just started to tell the story. <laughs> you know, we started to add that into the end of the film, and all of a sudden you, 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 you get this story that feels Moneyball-esque to me. Yeah, okay. 
it is, and it's a, it's a big, complicated machine that in your film boils down to simply one person making a moral personal stand, right? I mean, if, if he hadn't been so insistent, none of this would have ever, yeah, as you say, none of this would have ever come to light, but also it would still be going on. That, that's the, the, really, sure. the really horrible thing lurking underneath. <laughs> it's not even lurking. It's, it's the text of Prey, right? Isn't it that it will continue unless we stop it, unless it is stopped? Yeah. Because it's simply accepted that this is the cost of doing business, that, that people will be abused, that the machinery is in place to just continue to, to facilitate the abuse, to make it easier or to make it less difficult. I don't even know what the right term is, but the, the sense that this is institutionalized, that it's been going on forever, you don't even need to say it anymore in, in these films. It's just simply, look, this is, this is one case, but there will be more. There always are. Yeah, that's that's interesting that you talk about the cost of business and and also the notion that you don't even need to say it in these films anymore because you don't. I mean, we were we were we were you know we had a, a couple of rough cuts to look at and we were looking at op- different options in the edit suite and it got down to you know we don't need to retell the story of what the church did to these young boys because everybody knows what that is. I mean, we 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 we, we you know we mentioned it in the film, but there's no. There's there's no reason to go much further than that. Yeah. What the real story is 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 the institutional denial and the institutional abuse, and so that's so that's the story we followed. Yeah. But actually, when you mentioned the cost of silence, I, I think I think that was actually a previous title that we had floated oh. around, but it was too long. Yeah. So yeah. I can see that. But anyways, well, prey is is pretty direct and to the point. Um, I'm, I want to. Want to talk about Moneyball because it's nicer. Sure, but this is the impulse, right? I mean, this is even what you deal with when you're making your movies. That there are so many people who just prefer not to think about this and allow the the, the church to function because that's what it's for, right? I mean, the, the whole idea of this this institution that's so important in people's lives that to question it is to question themselves and their own faith, and you know that way you rig the system to engineer this this. People, this thing where people turn a blind eye and, and then you make the movie and people are oh, why do you have to tell people about this? Why do you have to make the movie? I'm, I'm, I hear this all the time when I write about this stuff. Yeah. You know, wouldn't it be easier to just not? And it's like, yeah, it would be, but then people get hurt. Yeah, I, I did not want to make this movie. You know, I, 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 I did not want to tell this documentary story. I mean, I sat on this idea for 10 or 15 years. Uh, you know, I, I grew up an altar boy in a Catholic church down in Windsor, Ontario, and and, uh, you know, around 2000 or so, we started to hear rumors of these priests and what they were doing and rumors turned to fact and convictions happened and all that stuff. And so I always, you know, for the last 10 or 15 years, I'm like, I should really do a documentary on that. I should really do it. And, 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 I, and I never did. And my wife, uh, Cornelia Principe, who's a producer, she, she's, she's the producer on the film, every year or so she would say, Matt, what about that documentary you were talking about? And I'm like, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. And then... One, I didn't want to do it because it's such a, a, a difficult subject. Two, is because mostly it's because I didn't know how to tell the story. I mean, I in in these documentaries, you're looking for a story that's unfolding, that's a current story that you can follow with a camera, and uh, stories of abuse are powerful to hear and document. But if it's historic, it doesn't really work that well in a documentary, in my opinion. So. But what I did is I, I, I spoke to a friend of mine who was actually one of the survivors of abuse, and and uh, I phoned Patrick. He's from Windsor. He's my age, but uh, I haven't spoken to him in 35 years. But I knew he was in the news before this talking about the abuse. And 
when I spoke to Patrick, he he uh, he introduced me to this world of priest hunting lawyers and civil suits, and all of a sudden I had this storyline to follow. So we chased that. Right. Well, it's I mean structurally in terms of Moneyball, it's the same way that the arrival of, of Jonah Hill's character, the composite character, just gives the whole thing a focus because we have a conduit for information and we have a solution to the problems that are being thrown at at our hero. And yeah. You're, through, you know what? Presents itself. I've never thought of that, but that's brilliant. That's, that's what that's, I do. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? No, no. I, I thought I thought that Rod McLeod was like the Billy Bean character for sure, but I never thought of Patrick as as the Jonah Hill character. I'm 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 gonna pass that along to him. He'll like that. I yeah. think you're the Billy Bean in this. Really? Like, well, you have to solve the problem, right? Like you're the one trying to figure out how to assemble everything. Right. I I I never saw myself as the Billy Bean. Okay. No, I, I Billy see. Billy Bean wouldn't see himself as a Billy Bean. You're, you're, you're right. He's sort of the reluctant hero, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's what makes him interesting, I yeah. think. Yeah. I, I'm fascinated by the way that, I mean, you know the story of Moneyball, right? The, the yeah. way the film was yeah. almost made and then unmade and made again. Uh, Steven Soderbergh was all set to direct a version of it, which fell apart, I think, on the first day of photography or the second. Okay. I didn't know this story. Oh, okay. So please tell me about this story. Well, this is what happened. There was a draft of a script that Soderbergh was going to shoot. It fell apart. Something happened to the financing. They were the, – the cast was assembled. It was ready to go. I, I do not have all the information in front of me, so now I'm mad at myself, but I'll put it in the intro. And uh, it fell apart, and Soderbergh moved on, couldn't do it. And eventually, I think it took another year, uh, Sony got Bennett Miller behind it, and he directed a different version of the film. The, the All I know about Soderbergh's version is that it would have had more documentary style footage, so there would have been interviews with the players and, and with Pitt as Bean, and I think it was still the cast was effectively the same. Hmm. Chris Pratt wasn't part of it. I know that. He came in because he was available the second time. And it would have been a different experience. I think it would have been a little more cerebral and a little less yep. um, a little less openly emotional. Yeah. I, I wonder if the thing that, although Bennett Miller is a pretty cold filmmaker too. I mean, Capote is not yeah. a warm film. No. Like it's chilly and, and or Fox or Foxcatcher. Foxcatcher especially. Foxcatcher is yeah. like watching a dissection. Um, but but Moneyball has this kind of big swing studio thing going on where they're just they embrace all the cheesy stuff that shouldn't work but they make it work. And and I think a lot of that is due to the relationship between Billy and his daughter, which Brad Pitt just plays so beautifully. I mean, I've always rooted for him as a as a character actor. He's had a really weird career. And I think Moneyball is maybe the first time you get the middle-aged Brad Pitt. Yeah. The first time no. he's sort of easy with his charm. And his his response to everything that goes on makes him this perfect audience surrogate where – because we all kind of want to be the movie star. But Brad Pitt makes it look like fun. What did you think of the daughter in, 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 the, in the film and the relationship? I think it's great. I think it's really yeah. sweet. And I think it's because we get to see Pitt be both – Billy, but Pitt's performance specifically, is both doting on her and also a little exasperated. Yeah. He allows himself to be frustrated but in a charming way. Like yeah. That's a thing that Brad Pitt does really well. Yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's funny. I was, I was watching it last night or the night before with my wife. We were just sort of sitting on the, and watching on the TV, and uh, there was the scene with the daughter, and we, and we have a daughter who's about the same age, and, and I just, I don't know, it, it, just, it just hit me, and I actually had a small tear that I didn't tell my wife about, Aww. but like rolled down my cheek, and I was like, okay, I better not, you At know. the very end with the song? It was, it was actually before that. It, it was the first time she played, and then, and then by the time the, the, the last scene came, yeah, like I was all in. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, it's uh, funny how that stuff can hit people differently. 
Yeah, I had the weirdest experience the first time I saw it. I, I definitely undervalued it. I went back and looked at my review, and it's a it was a three out of five, and it's probably it's easily a four. I was, it was the first. I should have checked your review before yeah. I said Moneyball. Oh no, no, you never do that. I've had to do I, I, the first episode of this podcast was American Hustle, which I hate. Oh yeah, okay. Like yeah. Anne Donahue chose that because right. she knew I didn't like it. Oh yeah, okay, interesting. Like if you can survive this, you can survive anything. Sure. Uh, no, Moneyball, I saw Moneyball on the first day of TIFF, I want to say. Right. Maybe the second. No, it was the first. It was the, like, the Thursday morning. Uh, there were two screenings back-to-back, and I don't remember the order, but it was Moneyball and Melancholia. Hmm. And I'm thinking it must have started with Melancholia. Right. Uh, because I was like, you know, it's this huge, devastating wallow in depression and the, and the cosmic angst and the end of the world. And then... Moneyball comes on. And I'm sure that's why I devalued it a little bit. And right. then they released it so quickly after the festival that I didn't have time to see it a second time. Sure. I just had to go with the initial impressions. But yeah. subsequently, watching it again, it's just – it's such it's such a smart little movie. I it's, don't think you can watch any film after Melancholia. I mean that would be – I watched four. <laughs> I had no choice. And they all got bad reviews yeah, after, after no, Melancholia? No, a couple of them were pretty yeah. But yeah, it's um, – it really is uh, – it's it is that thing that happens at the film festival too, where you just you're 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 basically sticking your face in a fan, and things are being fired at you, and you're you're required to go from you know a social satire from Korea to uh, a social satire with cannibalism qualities from Spain. I, I mean, those were I think those were screened on the same day this year. Paris right. and the platform. I saw them a day apart, thanks to luck of the draw. But you just you are just being slammed with genre and and other genre and different genre and documentary and other genre and comedy and and it is kind of hard to orient yourself. I mean, I've done it long enough that I think I have the muscle for it. Right. Yeah, I, at the time it was like, well, this is a fine studio picture and maybe there was some no, I don't even know that I knew that Soderbergh was going to do it the year before. So maybe I want to like maybe there was some subconscious snobbery. Some baggage going in there. Yeah, but yeah. I like Bennett Miller, so that probably yeah. is it. I wouldn't have held it against him certainly. Yeah. But the, and the combination of screenwriting, I think it's pretty easy to tell which scenes were written by Aaron Sorkin and which scenes were written by Steven Zalian. Right. Um, maybe that's it, that this version has – it feels like it was put together rather than made. Hmm. There are pieces that stick out here and there. Like the thing, that the, the thing that Chris Pratt is doing, which is beautiful, just sort of lurking in the background of every shot because at the time, nobody knew him in anything but Parks and Recreation. Right, right. And – um, all you know is that this character actor is vaguely familiar, but he's not terribly good at anything. And you just watch him. And it's because Miller knows what we know if we've watched Parks and Rec, which is that Chris Pratt has this amazing ability to radiate joy like a golden retriever. And they save it. Like he's just – he's unsure of himself and he's not – and he's clumsy and he's kind of an oaf. Yeah. And then at the end, when it all comes together for him, that that grin that he has, it's like, oh, that's when you become, you see this the kid becomes the movie star right yeah. in front of you. And that's something that, you know, I think Bennett Miller had that in his pocket the whole time, but I don't know if it was ever in the script. When now I sh- I should have checked this up, but when did he make Moneyball in his like? Does Moneyball come first before uh, Foxcatcher? No, it's yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's before Foxcatcher. Two thousand ten. Right. So yeah. Yeah. It's before Foxcatchers, before Guardians of the Galaxy. It's before a lot of things, really. And it's uh, and what about it would have been after Capote then? Yeah, Capote yeah. was two thousand and five. I want to say. Yeah. But uh, also for Pitt, it's before Tree of Life. It's before like it's a really pivotal moment for a lot of the talent involved. It's just this strange. Jonah Hill got the Oscar nomination yeah. for it, and that 
changed the way people saw him because, like, what, two years ago he was in Superbad? I thought Jonah Hill was so good. It he just, is, it's, he's it's, great. it's like just amazing to watch him. Like, I was just watching it again last night. It's just, you know, I, you know, he, he, he does this thing where he repeats his lines all the time for some reason, yeah. but it really works. Yeah, it's a you take know? that Denzel Washington does. Oh, yeah. And I remember thinking at the time, it's like, if that's a deliberate steal, that's really clever. And if yeah. it's not, if it's just someone who's so used to not being listened to that he's amplifying himself, that works too. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, just the sense that he's he's constantly annoyed that no one else gets him. But once he meets, and again, this is like the the other thing the film does where by turning it into a little bit of a buddy film, it lets us in emotionally into what could otherwise be a fairly cold, calculated storyline of just here is some math and here is how the math worked. But by having Billy tease him, which is another thing that Pitt does beautifully, like just that kind of relaxed, casual, eh, I'm just fucking with you, it's fine. Yeah. He does it constantly and it makes us warm to Jonah Hill rather than to Billy. Yeah. He's like inviting us in. It's like, I don't know, Downey introducing Spider-Man in, in, the, event, in the Captain America movie. <laughs> right, it's just like, right. oh, it's okay. He likes him, so right, I like him right. too. It's a, it's a lot of really smart decision-making. And you know, the book is none of that. The book, I mean, that's not fair. The book is great, but it is a cold read. I mean, you're reading a sports story about how a business completely changed because someone figured out a way to do calculations. I, I haven't even bothered with the book, but you've gone through it? I read it. Uh, the following year, I guess, yeah, after yeah. the movie came out. Uh, and it's Michael Lewis who wrote the, yeah, big, the book yeah. that became the big short, or the book right. is the big short, but he, he does yeah. this. He, he has a great, um, very casual style, but it's a very intellectual assessment of something. So he is telling you how the world changed. Yeah. I mean, there is no way that I should, I should like the, the movie of Moneyball. Like, I'm, I'm not a baseball fan, and, I'm, and, and as far as those stats go and all that stuff, I, I couldn't care less, but... Um, I think I th- there, was, there was there was something just right right at the opening of the film. There was a quote by Mickey Mantle. It was something about playing the game for twenty years and not knowing the game at all. Yeah, and that 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 sort of resonates with me right off the bat. You know, in terms of filmmaking and, and making, you know, like I've been doing this for twenty years as well. And 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 you know, this film has done well, but. And I'm hoping to recreate that in the next one, but at the end of the day, I really, you know, really don't know what I'm doing. Really? So yeah. is it the, is it the alchemy that you don't understand, or is it, in, is it filmmaking as an intuitive process where you find your way through every time? Well, I just think that you know that we is craft wise. Mm. I'll 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 put myself up against you know other directors in the country, and I'll do the Pepsi challenge with them. And I think craft wise, we're all good at our craft to varying degrees. But I think there's something that happens, uh, some magic stuff that happens. I mean, you know, if 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 Hollywood could make hits all the time, they would do it all the time. Sure. But they don't. They they have all the resources in the world, and and they can't do it. So the fact that you know, uh, you know, Matt Gallagher, the documentary filmmaker from Canada, can't do it every time, that that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. I mean, I I, I wish I I I wish I knew. I mean, sometimes my characters say s- stuff that I think to myself, oh, that's all I have to do. In in this film, the main character, I didn't even use it in the movie, but he said, you know, this film is the, you know, this, you know the reason this film is working is because you're filming me while I do the endeavor of my life. 
Well, I'm thinking, well, that's all I got to do from now on is find somebody who's embarking on the endeavor of their life and get the camera in there and, and start filming. But it, it depends on so many different things. Is that character interesting? Is the story interesting? Will the story have a beginning, middle, and an end? Well, yeah, <laughs> right. Know? What happens if judgment goes against him? Yeah. How many years is, are, is already invested in that? Right. This film could have died on the floor so many times. Yeah. It, if If – if we were halfway through the trial and he took the million-dollar offer, the film would have been done. I, I don't even think we would have done it. I think I think we would have said, okay. I mean, it, w- it would have been a nice short film maybe. And But who wants to see that film? I mean, you you, you kind of want to see your hero overcoming obstacles and, 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 and achieving what he wants to at the end of the day. Yeah, it's such a weird bargain you make with a documentary where, you know, I've seen stuff where people just – don't win, where the system just rolls right over. Barbara Koppel's made a bunch of them where it's just you you might be getting a tiny little victory, but you also know that the larger machinery is just going to crush these people in the end. Um, and, and more and more we're seeing films about ecological disaster that offer no hope except a website at the end. You know, the music, you, I, I, yeah, I, no, no, we all I, recognize it now, right? When the music comes up and everything feels like, and then you can fight on. It's like, oh, so you didn't get an ending. This is just the way the world is going, and this is the movie you've released. You, we, I see those over and over again because it's the way out. You can feel that somebody needed to make it feel positive. Right. Um, but then when you see a legitimate victory, uh, Knock Down the House is one I've, I've been talking about. I still haven't seen it, but yeah. Well, I mean, we know, yeah, right? Yeah, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wins. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the three other women they've been following don't. She's the only one. And the structure of the film is such that even though we know she's going to win, we become invested in the other three contests because I don't know that I heard how that story shook out. And, and you just right. – the more investment you make and then someone just quietly says, um, no, I think it's, it's AOC. She says it on a call at one point. She just says like, 20 minutes before the end of the film, look, you know, 100 of us run. One of us is going to win. And then you just think, oh, right. It actually, it isn't gonna. Like, it doesn't matter that I don't know how they won, whether they won or not. It, it doesn't matter that I don't know the outcome of these other races because I'm still just as invested. But it is a group effort. Even if they don't win, they've cleared the path for her, and that's what's that's what the victory is. And then they still find a way to show you that victory in a way, in a fashion <laughs> that is exhilarating. Right. Um, the camera, and it's just because the camera was in the right place at the right time to catch right. her missing the announcement that she's won, and she snaps her head around, and it's just your heart explodes. It's it's everything you want from a political documentary because it gives you the hope that maybe we're going to be okay after all, which is you know what any documentary nowadays, any kind of activist documentary aims to do. But it also you know you're crossing into agitprop at some point. You have to the idea of the I'm not even sure where this was going, but the the idea of the dispassionate, you know, sober, second-thought documentary that just shows you a situation and leaves you to make up your mind, those are going away. They are. And I don't know that it's a bad thing, the same way journalism is changing and being yeah. more confrontational. Like the, I don't know that it's a, a positive thing that it's taken two and a half years for the news to call Trump a liar, yeah. like, to use that yeah. word. Maybe we need to be more activist in general. Yeah, I, I, I mean— I don't know. I mean, I've 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 been having that conversation with my editor Nick Hector, who was co-producer on this film um, for fifteen years now, or ten or twelve years. He's 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 cut the last four or five of my documentaries, and he's very hands-on in the edit suite. It's just, uh, um, and we always have this discussion. And and Nick comes from the school of Alan King documentaries and 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 verite and 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 real and and and. 
often he'll cut his version of the film or his version of the rough cut and it will have a one of those endings that well life goes on and that's just and and so I'm always trying to sort of look for something different right <laughs> and 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 he's just got this 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 worldview that's different and and but we we sort of go back and forth and and um we end up with what we end up with yeah and you know praise not a dispassionate film no it's i mean it feels angry yeah to me the best moments in in documentaries I find are when you can feel people getting angry behind the camera where you can actually feel oh, empathy yeah. or sympathy happening yeah there was, there was there was all that in i mean i mean we've had some great uh, festival screenings just recently and you sit in the back row and i know when the audience is just going to like you feel their anger building and there's a title card that comes up that says the church appealed after 30 days and the whole audience is just like oh <laughs> it's just like and and it's 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 uh, as a filmmaker it's it's satisfying uh, knowing that 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 you that you can you know make people feel that so yeah it's it, it, was, it was it was and it's the same every screening so yeah um, I saw a screening of uh, an early screening actually of stories we tell after uh, after I'd it was my second screening um, Sarah Polly asked me to do the Q and A right uh, with her family members uh, oh, nice. after, afterwards? And there's a uh, you've seen it. Yep. yep. There, there's a moment where the movie just stops to let you register the loss of Diane Polly, and it's just shots, silent shots of the family members one at a time, and it's maybe 45, 50 seconds long. Wow! But it's this longer yeah. of of just silence, and the second time through, I got to just watch it with an audience. A big, big room. Like it was a benefit screening, Varsity Eight. Sure, you know, six hundred people. Wow! And you could feel it land, and it hadn't really hit me just how smartly edited that was. Yeah, how it sort of tees up and hits you, and you just sit in it for a sec, for a minute, like for forty-five, fifty seconds, and you sit in this moment. And this time through, I was at the back of the theater, and I could hear people start to cry. Oh my God. And it's just like, oh, wow, yeah. You just like this little <gasps> people starting to sob. And I don't know that I've experienced a moment like that with an audience in a documentary since. Wow. And it's just one of those moments where it's like all you're seeing is is just a reaction from people. Just the, the reaction on the screen is being mirrored in the room, and it just flowed through the room like a wave. And it was – comedies do that, but – I'm gonna rewatch that. Yeah, it's something. It's yeah. really something. Yeah, that's 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 brilliant editing, right? Yeah, and it's gutsy editing. Yeah, and it's just yeah, we you trust the audience to get it to really understand it. And the first time through, I was just too busy crying. Right, right. Uh, but the second time, it's just like, oh, I see how you did that, and it's it's just so smart. And then when subsequently we talked about it again, and she said that you know, like we just we found that it was just there. It was in the editing. We realized that we had all these pauses. And, we could structure it. Was it pauses that were uh, specifically from just dead interview space? or I think so, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. just people not knowing what to say about the moment. I mean, it's all about the thing. It's all real. It's not pulled from other – Sure. From, from B-roll or anything. But it is a deliberate choice to put these things in this order, right? That That is the thing that creates an emotional groundswell in the viewer. And yeah, not necessarily – playing on our emotions but conducting us like finding the, the same way the title card works in yours right, it right. brings us to that moment puts everything in front of us and then hits you with the this is what it means and this is what happened next 
And that's that just with, – with prey, it's like this cynicism, the moment that, oh, right, of course they were going to do this. Of course they were going to appeal, but god yeah. damn it. I know. It's funny. It's, it, those, 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 those faces of, of your main characters, often they can tell you volumes of stuff. We, we in, in uh, some of the uh, Black Limbo interviews that we did, we used uh, an eye direct. So your interview subject is essentially looking down the barrel of the camera okay. – as I'm sitting next to the camera, they can see a reflection. It's, it's the Errol the Morris, the, yeah, the, yeah. the, the Interatron. But what we did this time is I, I took a laptop of the Marshall 90-minute deposition video, and we put that on the Interatron. We gave the subjects headphones, and we had them listen to this, this dead man's confession of a, of a, of a now-deceased priest uh, confessing to 40 dec- four decades of abuse and... And I remember, you know, we filmed maybe 10 or 15 minutes per subject with, with that technique, and it was just so powerful. Like, you could, you know, you could see anger, you could see sadness, you could see all these emotions. And, and so we used those, those clips throughout, you know, in, in various points to, to take us places that I want the audience to see. Emotional signposts for us, too, to sort of keep us level, right? Keep us invested in the pain that was caused. So Moneyball. <laughs> yeah. But Moneyball has that with... Back to Moneyball, yeah, the happy but it, film. But it does have that same kind of orchestration, right? Like it is structured to the payoff where even if there isn't an actual triumph, there is emotional victory. Like people win stuff. They just don't win the World Series. Right. And I guess in, in, in most films, we're used to the, to the team winning the World Series at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the Bad News Bears things. Yeah. Well, it was Major League, too, right? Yeah. That was the one I was thinking of. With the, I, and I realized when I looked back at my review that I, that was the one I cited. It was Major League with math. Right. <laughs> but it is, right? Like, it's the whole, the same idea of right. putting together a scrappy team of ne'er-do-wells. Uh, Major League is a lot more broad. But people love it because they think it gives them the true story of baseball or the reality, the authenticity of, like, there's dirt and there's failure and people hate each other. And Moneyball has all of that but in a more polished and warmer way. It's very polished. But they still use, like, I know you mentioned earlier that that there was more documentary elements in the previous version of it or something. I'd be curious to see that. I mean, because, like, I'd love to see it. I thought... I thought there was loads of documentary elements, like loads of archival baseball and, and, and all, all that stuff. I mean, the, 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 the Brad Pitt flashbacks, I thought, were, you know, kind of pushing it on the, on the cheese factor. But yeah. uh, That felt like a note, right? Like, yeah. We need to see him. We need to know. I, w- I wonder how they could have done that differently to make that work better. Yeah. I don't know. Still photographs, maybe. Yeah. Something, like something that is much more of a device. Right. Like an obvious device rather than a flashback. And they did use still photographs throughout the movie. Like there was, there was plenty of that stuff. So I wonder why they didn't go that road. Yeah. I don't know. I, with Soderbergh, I just assumed it would have been black and white and all handheld and some kind of sure. some kind of weird aesthetic choice that would turn out to be exactly what the material needs because he's so good at that. The I've, I've talked to him since. I haven't had, uh, interviewed him once or twice since then, and I haven't had the chance to ask about it. And I, it's one of those regrets. It's like, so did they actually make a film? No. They never shot it. Um, the script existed. It was ready to go, but they, I, it was either the first day of principal photography or two days before that they shut it down. Sony just pulled the plug. Why? I don't know. I think it was money in the end. I think it was a financial question, but I have no idea what that was. But Brad Pitt was on board and... and as far as I know, yeah. it was like 90% the same cast. And maybe Hoffman came in right. after the fact. I'm not sure about that. Right. It was obviously if Miller needed someone, he would have called sure. his Capote guy. Yeah. But... To my knowledge, it was more or less ready to go as, as built, and then it just shut down, rewrote, and shot again. 
or, or actually shot, went to photography. Um, there's got to be a wiki page. I <laughs> just, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know how much you can trust of any of that stuff. So I I'm know, just going I know. I remember. And I've been getting the year wrong all along in my brain. It was shot in 2010, but it was released. It was screened in 2011. Well, this is I why I came it. to do this interview is to get all this stuff from you. Get the facts right. <laughs> yes. Look, I have a terrible job. On <laughs> but the um, the overall experience of it is this heartwarming, cheerful. You know, they built a they built a baseball movie out of an economic story, right? Which I find fascinating too. Is that you took the information; it's in there, and they've turned it into something that is relatable and digestible. It's the opposite of what happened to the Big Short, right? Where Adam McKay's approach was to stylize everything and make it sort of, you know, reading is fundamental. You just bounce the bounce the information in and acknowledge just how dense it is and how little people are interested in knowing what happened behind this scandal. With Moneyball, it's really simple. You know, like somebody took a math uh, approach to, right. a, to somebody took a statistical approach to a sports problem and found a way to re-engineer the concept of building a team. That's what it is. Right? Right. I mean, that's basically it in a nutshell. But then you have to have the moment of discovery. You have to have the moment of testing. You have to see it play out. You have to see people not believe it. It has to become a struggle, which it probably was. Whereas in the big short, they, they were able to inject things a lot. Yeah. More, I mean, Margot well, Mar- 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 Roby in, 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 in a bathtub, yeah. yeah. And the other thing about the big short is that the disaster has already happened, right? Like right. It's about people who are going to fail. And Moneyball is the thing is the reverse, right? Like it's the it's where Sorkin comes in too, because the social network in retrospect is a movie about people trying to stop a monster from getting out. They just don't understand that. There's one scene that I, the day I saw it the first time I it stuck with me is the scene where um, just because the internet isn't working, they have to run from one building to another. Uh, on campus. Right, right. And it's shot like, like Fincher absolutely understands what he's doing. And it's shot like the scene in every virus movie where the scientist tries to contain the outbreak. Right. Like he's running to, he's not trying to stop something in the movie, but that's what it looks like. And just in that little moment, and I don't even know that Sorkin was aware of it, but in that little moment, you have this sense of, oh, right, this is actually going to be bad. This is a, a thing that's going to be malevolent in the world, malignant in the world. And Moneyball has Sorkin applying a little bit of that. Like the, he's great with speeches. He's great with that thing where one person in the room knows more than everybody else and can't stop himself from saying it. But then you have Steven Zalian who is the structure guy. He wrote Schindler's List. He wrote uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer, this little movie right after that no one remembers. But I did the junket for it, so I've always had a soft sure. spot for it. But it's the one about chess Yeah. Uh, with, with uh, Bruce Pendlefini right. and revolutionizing the, the – the game of chess through a kid who was effectively on the spectrum, but that no one had the words for it at the time. And that's the key to me for Moneyball is that he's a guy, and I'm sure he worked on it with Soderbergh. Like that, he, that would be a pairing that makes sense to me, that he found an emotional way into what is effectively the story of a math problem. How do you win at chess? Well, you have to be really good at it. And how do you do that? Well, you have long speeches about chess that don't make sense to anybody who doesn't play the game, but the people inside that world love it. Moneyball is that. Moneyball is the same thing. As a screenplay, as a, as a movie, it's about people talking about how much they love baseball and they love it so much that they figured out a way to calculate a way to make it better, which is so mathy yeah. uh, that, of course, it came from the same guy. Yeah, and it shouldn't appeal to people. Yeah. But it, but it, it appealed to me for some reason. And me too. Yeah. I, I'm not a sport. My brother is the sports guy. Yeah. Um, he picked Bull Durham to do the podcast. Of course he did. But... Uh, <laughs> 
but yeah, it is like I have absolutely no interest in sports other than maybe, you know, I played baseball when I was a kid. That was sure. always fun. But watching people do it is less interesting to me. Yeah. And watching it in a movie, you know, for me, the best sports movies are the movies where the sport is the thing that matters to the character. Rocky or Field of Dreams is a great example sure. where baseball is basically a mythology that underpins the whole story. Sure. Uh, but, but Moneyball makes the baseball interesting, which was surprising to me because I did not think I was going to like that part. Wow, man. I, I, I mean, like, you're, 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 you're like, you're like, it's, it's like I'm sitting in the office of my therapist or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to understand why I like certain things and why I don't. <laughs> this is what I do. I feel things back at people. It's my superpower. <laughs> but yeah, it's. That's my connection to it is that I care because Billy Bean cares. I care because the, I care because Chris Pratt is in there yeah. trying. Like he's really trying. Yeah. And so funny. the payoff is wonderful for that. So you come out feeling like you've watched, you know, a sports team you love, even though they're not a team yet. They're they're becoming a team, which I guess is the other thing that that's a that's a story that goes through all of narrative cinema. You know, the the band the 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 family that comes together, you make your own family, you make your own um, destiny. Yeah. But Moneyball kind of does that too. They still have to choose to be a team. Even though they're thrown together, they have to get to the point where they like working with each other, which is, again, a whole bunch of hockey movies and a whole bunch of football movies. Not so much baseball generally. Major League, though, where you're watching misfits fit. And that's pleasurable too in its own way. It's Again, it's structure, right? It's pieces coming together. Yeah, I I've, I saw I I sort of watched those relationships in in, in like Moneyball, and I think part of the reason I like the film so much is that many of those relationships resonate with me in terms of working with crews and working with other people and working with broadcasters and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So I you know I, I, the like movie had me right from the start, and I don't know what why, but uh, I'm starting to learn <laughs> just listening to you. Well, that's what I do. <laughs> but the yeah, not but there's no but there. That's true. Yeah. Uh, what I what I take away from it is the the pleasure of watching the machine function, um, of watching the pieces of a of a you know it's like a genre piece that lays out everything. It's what I get from kind of the horror movies that I love, where you engage with one aspect of this genre in a way that proves you've done the work that you've thought it through. And Moneyball is a movie where everybody's really taken a minute or two, and probably during the rewrites or the or the reformation of the project of the production. They've taken a moment to figure out what kind of movie this is and what kind of movie they want it to be. And if they want to be a generic sports movie instead of whatever Soderbergh was going to do, they're going to make the best version of that. So I think they kind of did. I, it works in a way that, what, eight years later, I'm still into it. You know, like the filmmaking is solid. Nothing has really changed. Um, you're not you're, – you're never pulled out by any particular attitude uh, of the film – you know, there's nothing to throw you out of it. It's it's a unified experience, and it's still rooted in ultimately in the whole the whole thing, right? The whole uh, it's not generic exactly, but that package that you get with a sports movie about sure. dreamers and aspiration and hope, and you have a father trying to connect with his daughter, which is the most basic thing that you can run through a movie, but it works. But but when you first saw it, you said that that you had a few problems with it. Like, what did your yeah, review say? It, uh, it felt kind of well. I can actually. I would love to. I would love to read it. I have it right here. Excellent. I'll pull it out. I'm, I'm excited. And I also have an ad from Uniqlo. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, okay, here we go. Screenwriters Steven Zalian and Aaron Sorkin have done a decent job of turning Michael Lewis's 2003 book about Oakland A's GM Billy Bean's revolutionary redesign of the 2002 team into a conventional baseball picture. The trick is that they structure it as an underdog tale about a manager who believes in his players even though he really believes in their stats. See, that's a good way to sum it up. I wish I'd thought of that before. Um, and uh, yeah, here we go. Um, when do you get nasty? Uh, never nasty. It's a, it's a positive <laughs> review. Uh, entertaining if undistinguished sports movie style. Right. And uh, what else do? Oh yeah, here we go. Um, uh, I I was big on Brad Pitt. Uh, it isn't a complex performance, but it's an appealing one. And Pitt has fun when he's teasing Jonah Hill's bookish ill at ease brand or grading on skeptical coach Art Howe, Philip Seymour Hoffman, appropriately surly. Yeah, we don't. Yeah. We haven't really talked about Howe enough. Yeah. He need he needs to be the closest thing the movie has to a villain because he's an unbeliever. Sure. And I think Hoffman acquits himself very well that way. But it is kind of a, and this is yeah here as I wrote, uh, Miller should have taken Pitt's cue and given the movie some of the same risky energy as it is. Moneyball feels calculated and safe as though someone had built a sports movie version of Bean's stats modeling software and let it run. And I still think that's fair. Like, yeah. It is. It's a safe movie in that it gives you exactly what you think you want. And at no point do we do we get to be challenged on our not our expectations, but there all the pushback comes from unbelievers, right? All the pushback comes from people who don't think it's going to work. And because we know it did, because we already know years later what happened, there is a little bit of an undermining there. That you know, look at this guy; he doesn't know. He's like Philip Seymour Hoffman does a great job of playing a guy who doesn't believe, right? It. But he also, after a certain point, starts to come off like. A bully, like he just doesn't care about this new possibility because he only believes in his one thing. Which, again, I'm sure that was the case with the person, or not him, maybe not the real person, but I'm sure that was the case with somebody at some point. But when you stack the deck like that, you're telling the audience that everything's going to be okay. And I think that's the kind of thing that Moneyball doesn't need. You know, make it feel riskier. Show us just how much of a leap this was, rather than move with the confidence that this is all going to be fine. But you know, you know. I started out by saying that I'm not a baseball fan, and I'm not a baseball fan, so I didn't know the story when I first saw the film. Okay. I I, I didn't even know the book when I first saw the film. Interesting. I hadn't read the book, but yeah. I did know about the idea. Yeah. Maybe just because of osmosis. Yeah. So I I mean I don't know if that makes me screen it differently than you. It probably does, but uh, yeah. I I uh, so so when I saw Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, I. You know, I know that guy. That guy exists in, in in every business that we've ever you know done, or every film we've ever done. I mean, there's always the non-believer guy, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know, so I didn't know how it was going to end. Yeah, you maybe know? it's the false note of of the composite thing, too. The idea that he's he's a real person, but he has to stand in for every person who didn't believe in sabermetrics. Like he has to represent that entire point of view, and it risks tipping over into caricature into sort of a blunt object rather than a person. Um, did you ever see uh, Norman Jewison's The Hurricane? Uh, yeah. The one about Ruby yeah, Carter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, what, what Jewison does in that, and I think it's a terrible, terrible narrative mistake, is make one cop representative. The Dan Hedaya character didn't exist. The lieutenant who, who torments Ruben Carter and stalks him his entire life and frames him for this murder, he didn't exist. He is representative of the entire criminal justice system. And by making one guy a racist with a beef, you completely undermine the real message of the story, which is that it could have happened to anybody. It wasn't just because this guy crossed this guy one time. It was that he was a black man who was fingered 
by an entire institution that didn't care if he was innocent. And it cuts the legs out from under it. And I'm not saying that Hoffman's performance is equated to that. Sure. It's not the same. But that's the thing that always gets me kind of thinking, well, is he really that, is he really that resistant? Is this one guy? Wasn't, yeah, but wasn't uh, Billy Bean surrounded by non-believers? Yeah, that's, I think that's what makes it easier. He but, had the ex-scout who quit on him. You know, yeah. even, even his own daughter was unsure. Hey, Daddy, are you going to get fired type thing? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, sorry. I was going to say, if you don't know the, the, if you don't know where it's going, yeah, yeah of course that would yeah. make you feel more natural. But it just felt to me like the movie is stacking the deck so he can have a bigger victory at the end. Even though in the end, the way it handles that victory is really smart and very heartwarming. Right, so right. I'm just, yeah, I think it's my own sensitivity to structure and, and trope. Trope. That kicked in. <laughs> yes. Especially after something like Melancholia where, you know, <laughs> there are no tropes in that movie. That's all just, that's a ringer. Yeah. And yeah, I, I again, like I've had time to come around and I think I would have definitely rated it a little bit higher. Good. <laughs> uh, cause, yeah, because it's a, it is a weirdly, um, it's a, it's a lovely little machine. It is a studio picture. Like, yeah, for sure. It doesn't hold back on that stuff, but it's very sweet in a strange way. And I think a lot of that too now is looking back at Pitt and seeing just how much of the actor he is now in that performance. Right. Where, you know, like between that and Tree of Life, he really, he repositioned himself radically at that point in time. And I think we're all better for it. Yeah, definitely. Even though we were talking before the, the, uh, before the recording started, we were talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and how, to my mind, he is so incredibly charming as a character who is also full-on murdering people. <laughs> and the film, you know, people come out of that movie thinking, oh, well, Brad Pitt was the best. I want him to be my buddy. You know, he's the best guy. And it's like, well, I think that's how the movie sees him, but I don't know if we're supposed to. I, I wish documentary was that was that way where you could always find compelling characters oh, yeah. because sometimes you come across a great story, but the characters don't work. I mean, you know, there, I, I I was doing a little research on um, the director from Moneyball. Is it Bennett? Bennett Miller. Yeah. yeah, and he did a documentary. I forget the title, but it was it looks like it it it, it was done before nine eleven because the World Trade Center. But it was basically a tour guide. Of a of a New York City, he was a New York City tour guide, and it was a it was a basically a character portrait. That oh, was, oh yes, um, uh, Timothy Speed. What's his name? Right? Yeah, yeah. I can't remember the name of the doc. But yeah, but uh, yeah. So that very, was an very, example of of a really compelling character. I thought I thought that the documentary itself lacked some story, and so it didn't hold for me. Yeah, but it feels like he's trying to keep up with him. Yeah, yeah. Levitch, Speed Levitch. Yeah, that was right, name. right, right. And but I, I uh, you know, whenever we're, you know, putting together a documentary, we're always talking about, you know, a crude term is casting, mm-hmm. you know, and it's and it's and it's and it's one thing to find a really good story, but you're always looking for somebody to tell that story well. Yeah, I mean, you have it in Billy Bean as, yeah. a, as a fictional character, as a real person, and you you absolutely have it in Prey because. All you have to do is watch this man sit still and you can feel yeah. the weight of everything that's happened to him. And, and the, the resolute, just the, the steel in him to keep going. Uh, yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, that's lightning in a bottle when you get it. Yeah. But also the story breaks your way. You yeah. have a story you yeah. can tell. So it's, 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 again, one of those reasons why it's so difficult to make a, a, a film or a documentary that works. Yeah. Is you need all these things. So... Yeah. We've already sort of talked, I mean, the, the 
final question on the podcast is always what if what if the film have, we've discussed have you taken in and, and used in your own work? We really didn't yeah. discuss it with Moneyball, but I still can't believe those two things connect so easily. It's such a it's such a conceptual leap. I'm, well, even even you know, just it, and and it's something that I I sort of knew I I like knew there was connections there, and 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 so I was I was sort of, you know, sort of just exploring that and 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 going back and and it, but the big thing for me was trying to figure out how to make my documentary end, mm-hmm. and that's always I mean the good thing about it is with documentary filmmaking is that you get to choose when your story ends, and so I would have waited a long time, but it, fortunately the story was already there in the can. Yeah, that's great with that. Yeah, it just makes it must be so much less stressful to know that you have it. Yeah, and then what do you do? I mean, when you know you've got it. Well, when you're working, you know, it's when 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 I started this uh, job as a filmmaker, I actually used to work with actors. I I used to do sketch comedy for CBC out in Halifax at CBC Halifax, working with you know teenagers and and uh, people and and and. And I haven't worked with actors a lot, <laughs> but it's sort of the same thing. I mean, I mean, all 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 these people who come up to you, they're they're asking you the same question when when you're approaching them to be in your documentary. It's like, why would I want to be in your documentary? They're basically asking, "What's my motivation?" <laughs> because because yeah. we can't pay them, we we don't pay them. So you would hope that they're motivated by telling their story and getting it out there, but that's not always the case. So you're always sort of looking for that that sort of motivation, to the reason why somebody would want to tell their story. The kinds of films I do, you know, mostly they're subjects where people shouldn't want to talk about things. I mean, my last film was How to Prepare for Prison, where where people were facing, you know, being incarcerated for the first time. So I, I followed their stories as as they went to trial, were convicted, and they had about a three-month window before they were going to go off to jail. And, and so uh, I had to, you know, you, 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 ha- you have to find people who are willing to talk about that on camera and go public, which is always difficult. Yeah. But Prey, it wasn't difficult. It was the first film I've ever made where people are busting at the seams to tell these stories. They really want the public to know, and they really want the church to take notice. I'm glad it's out there. I really, it, it's, I know it's a story that we've seen we were saying it's a story that's been told a number of times, but there's some immediacy here. There's a, there's a, well, I mean, it's, it puts a, an individual face on the, on the problem, which is always helpful to, to people who don't want to accept that there is collateral damage or actual physical damage to people being mm-hmm. done. But yeah, it's really powerful. And I'm glad, I'm glad, it, I'm glad you made it, but I'm also glad that people get a chance to see it now. So yeah, I will just, you know, direct people to it because Great. that's literally the only thing I can do. You did all the work. I just get to point to it. I didn't do all the work. I just pointed the camera. <laughs> okay. Well, I can point to you pointing. All right. Thank you. Not at all. My thanks to Matt Gallagher, whose powerful new documentary, Prey, makes its premiere tonight, Tuesday, November 19th, at 9 p.m. on TV Ontario and streaming on TVO.org. It'll repeat on TV Ontario at 9 p.m. Thursday, November 21st, and again at 9 p.m. Saturday, November 23rd. Thanks also to Macy Armstrong and Ingrid Hamilton. They know what they did. Matt's not on Twitter, but you can find Moneyball on Blu-ray and DVD in a fine special edition from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. It's also on iTunes and Google Play, and streaming in Canada on Amazon Prime Video. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our shiny new theme song is by The Last Year. If you have an opinion on it or the show... 
feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you enjoy us. That would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. I'm really enjoying The Gravy Train, Jordan Heath Rawlings' limited series about the life and political legacy of Toronto Mayor Rob Ford. Give it a shot. Thanks for your support. And thanks for listening. See you next week.